Hello, and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. And we've been going down the AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of purportedly the top 25 scores in American cinema history. We're all the way down to number six on their list. Which means that on this episode, we'll be discussing John Williams' score to the original summer blockbuster, 1975's Jaws. Jaws was written by Peter Benchley and Carl Gottlieb, based on the novel by Peter Benchley. It was produced by David Brown and Richard D. Zanuck, and it was directed by Steven Spielberg. Andy, tell us about Jaws. Jaws is a shark, <laughs> and it stars in a movie about a killer shark menacing a New England island resort town. Chief Brody, the chief of police of that town, is played by Roy Scheider. A salty old crotchety fisherman named Quint is played by Robert Shaw. And a young oceanographic scientist named Matt Hooper also goes along for the ride, and he's played by Richard Dreyfus. Basically, the shark keeps killing people, mm. and eventually, those three guys just mentioned have to team up to kill the shark. Good enough? <laughs> okay, good enough. Handy, I've got a memory I want to run by you. Let me know if this sounds right to you. Okay. I think that in college, I admitted to you that I had somehow made it to college never having seen Jaws. And you said, well, we're fixing that right now, and sat me down and, and watched it with me. Do you remember that? Mm, no. <laughs> but there's lots of things about college that I don't remember. Fair enough. It very well may have happened. <laughs> I mean, you were incredulous that I hadn't seen it. Oh, was I? I'm sorry. I try not to be incredulous when people haven't done things because people haven't done things. But uh, maybe <laughs> in college I was still doing that. You were nice about it, I think. But my explanation was that I was a scaredy cat and I didn't like scary movies. I didn't like horror movies. Uh -huh. You know, I had this impression that Jaws was going to be a scary movie where something jumped out to eat me. That's why I hadn't sought it out before then. Right. And did possibly imaginary past version of me tell you that it wasn't like that or that it was like that no you told me that it wasn't like that you said that that's a misconception about jaws that's in the sort of casual consciousness of people at large that it's like a real scary gotcha horror thriller movie and you said no it's really not it's really more like a adventure quest movie well even if it wasn't me and even if this never happened <laughs> i think it did what do you think i mean uh, looking at it now i feel like well it's kind of both, or it reaches in both directions. Yeah, it definitely does. And some other directions, too, I would say. Well, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I didn't imagine that Jaws was a movie that could possibly have music in it that sounded like this. Yeah, the poster doesn't look like that. The poster, right. Yeah, like the idea of it being a cheap scare ride had kind of seeped into me. And so, yeah, I was really surprised that it had this like fun adventure on the sea quality to it. That it was this kind of rollicking quest thing. Yeah, well, I'm led to understand that 
Steven Spielberg was a little surprised about that too, and John Williams had to sort of show it to him. I don't think that that was the conception of what the movie was going to be until this score showed up, which I think is a pretty interesting thing about this score. You know, the famous story about this movie is that it was really hard to shoot because they had planned on using all of these special effects shots of the mechanical shark, and then the mechanical shark was broken most of the time and unreliable, and they had to kind of wing it and shoot other stuff and come up with other ways of presenting it. And the result is a movie that's kind of pieced together out of a lot of bits, like something that's tied together in editing. It goes to a lot of different tones and moods and... The movie's not all one thing. Yeah, you're right. It's a lot of different things. And I really appreciated this time around. I mean, obviously, if you say Jaws and if you say the music from Jaws to somebody, they'll go bottom, bottom to you. And, you know, we're definitely going to talk about how effective that is. But right off the bat, I just want to say how much other material there is in this score and how much it helps the movie for Williams to be really propping up these other ways of appreciating the action that he is teasing out of it this kind of old-timey sea adventure. Uh, I've got a quote here from an interview where he actually said, it suddenly becomes very Korngoldian, referring to Eric Wolfgang Korngold, who wrote the score to the old Robin Hood movie that we talked about a few episodes yeah. ago. He was talking about, you know, those scenes on the boat where they're cruising around after the barrels, and he said, you expect to see Errol Flynn at the helm of this thing. It gives us a laugh. Having the music be so nimble as to bounce back and forth between the tense bottom, bottom, and then this fun swashbuckling sea adventure where you'd expect Errol Flynn, it helps the movie so much. It makes it feel expansive and worthwhile every which way. And then there are so many other tones that he strikes in the music. You know, there's this kind of fun, quirky, baroque sounding. That's right, the montage. I love that thing. This is when all of the tourists are piling onto the island on the ferries and juxtaposed with Brody and Hooper trying to make plans to keep them safe. It's got this kind of silliness to it that tells you you know, this isn't really the movie we're watching. This music never shows up. You never hear anything like this music anywhere else in the film. But the idea that it's there in such a lovely ingredient to get to experience and then to have in the rearview mirror as it goes past. Yeah, this is kind of a high wire act to be this varied yeah. in the course of, you know, the definitive summer blockbuster popcorn movie. This is not supposed to be a complex movie or a movie that the audience has to integrate a bunch of different points of view. It's jumping to all these places and it manages to sell each one of them to you so that you don't blink an eye. Mm -hmm. Like, take that Korngoldian moment that we played a minute ago. It takes guts to be that over the top without going over the top. I mean, I think that he's taking that off of a shot where you sort of see the prow of the ship that they're in kind of swing past the camera and it's got a slightly heroic kind of staging to it. And mm -hmm. he saw that and thought, I'm going to go all out with what that looks like rather than trying to tie it to the dramatic emotional range that we've established. We're going to go further. We're going to go beyond that range. It's impressive. It's impressive that it works. Bring it on the barrel. I'm coming around again. It 
it's easy to look at it and say, well, he just does a great job and it works. But I have been thinking as I've been thinking about this movie, like, why does it work? Why do you not sort of get snapped out by that? Or why does the yeah sort of pseudo Baroque thing for the tourist montage not snap you out of the movie and say, what is this? Why? Why do you just eat it up? I mean, you're in the middle of the movie and then suddenly there's a harpsichord. There hasn't been a harpsichord before. You'd think that would be a surprise. But in the moment, it feels so apt. It feels natural. Uh, incidentally, you said that nothing like that ever comes up in the movie again. But uh-huh. I do think that he's got this sort of serious action theme on the boat later that comes up a few times, which has a, also sort of a pseudo-Baroque vigor to it. Uh-huh, the shark cage fugue. Yeah, he calls it that on the album. It's not really a strict fugue. But the fact that it even starts with a fugue makes it sound sort of neoclassical. Yeah, I buy that. It's contrapuntal for a moment right. there. I think that figure, that really energetic, mobile, angular figure, I'll borrow an observation that my friend Eben Schletter, friend of the show, once said, is that it sounds like a fish swimming. It's wiggling and writhing this way and that. It starts and stops and it kind of slaloms and goes up and down. It sounds like the kind of darting of a little fish movement. That's a cool description. I'm not sure that that's intended since it's used for the action of the guys almost exclusively and not for really anything in the water. Yeah, well. But it is a great theme. I mean, it's a wonderful little figure. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, there's just a pile of different stuff in this movie, both visually, dramatically, and musically. And that it all hangs together is this sort of miraculous achievement. My best answer for how he's able to do that is that he has a real clear sense of what you care about, how you feel about it, and why. And the movie is able, I think, to take slightly different approaches to that because that is so clearly seen. And I do think that there's evidence that John Williams had almost as much of a hand in that as Spielberg. So there's a bunch of different interviews that they've done over the years, because you can imagine how many times people have asked them to talk about the collaboration on Jaws. You can see the DVD extras and TV interviews and print interviews. And the story gets told in a bunch of different places, and we can probably find a clip of Spielberg saying... When he finally played the music for me on the piano, he previewed the main Jaws theme. I expected to hear something kind of weird and melodic, you know, and kind of tonal but eerie and of another world, almost a bit like outer space, inside, you know, inner space, under, under the water. And, and what he played me instead with two fingers on the lower keys was dun, 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 dun. And at first I began to laugh. I thought he was, he had a great sense of humor. I thought he was putting me on. And, and he said, no, that's the theme that draws. And I said, play it again. He played it again. And he played it again. And it suddenly seemed right. And John found a signature for the entire movie. I just want to comment on this story that sometimes the way it's packaged, uh, you know, like on a DVD, is this impression of, oh, it took him a while to realize how brilliant using just two notes for the shark was and why that would be anything because two notes doesn't seem like anything. But I don't think that's really what it is. I think that what is really in the story there is that Spielberg thought this was going to be an actual horror movie Uh, Here, I've got one quote I found in one interview. Spielberg says he uh, articulates it. Here's the quote. I had a more esoteric idea musically in mind. He said, the sophisticated approach you'd like me to take isn't the approach you took with the film I just experienced. Hmm. This is a huge over-the-top pirate movie. 
And he had to report this to Spielberg. And what he meant by the sophisticated approach is suggested uh, in this LA Times article. It says that Spielberg had tempted some of it with music that John Williams had written for this Robert Altman movie, Images, a couple years earlier, which is a super creepy, surreal, psychological movie about a woman basically having a psychotic break. And he wrote this avant-garde stuff that's weird textures, unearthly, out-of-body weirdness. Yeah, I think that what is implicit here is that Spielberg saw it more as a horror movie and less as an adventure movie than what it ended up being. And his surprise at the dun-dun-dun-dun is that it was so cartoonish, kind of obvious. It reduces the shark from what he thought the shark was going to be. He thought the shark was going to be more complex a presence. Mm. You know, dun-dun-dun-dun uh, for something that's <laughs> coming at you is not unprecedented or surprising. I think it's the daring to be so blunt and kind of dumb, brainless, as he says in these interviews, <laughs> uh, I think is insight into how the movie was going to balance out. That a complicated psychological shark was of no value to anyone. Yeah. So I saw an interview where Williams is saying, well, the movie you made is about dinosaurs. And this was before Jurassic Park. But he said, this is, you know, a primitive being. This is a prehistoric, primordial kind of a force. And that's what you made this movie about. Yeah, Mindless is right. I mean, I feel like he must have taken a cue from the little Richard Dreyfuss speech where he says this is a perfect machine that has evolved only to swim, eat, and make little sharks. It's all it does. Right. And so it's, yeah, it's totally simple-minded and not even-minded. It's you know, no-minded. Right. It's a less frightening thing, you would think, than what's in most horror movies. In fact, comparing to Jurassic Park, not to go too into it, but in the movie where they actually did have dinosaurs, uh-huh. they made the dinosaurs much more complex in what you feel about them. The beautiful dinosaurs have this right. beautiful dinosaur music about the awe. And then the scary dinosaurs have music that kind of is about, oh, their intelligence is scary. They're thinking something about you. They're going to come and get you. It's this kind of snarling, you know, menacing other. They have sort of identity. They are more than just a force. They're scary beings, and they have this kind of scary personality. And the shark is like fire. Like, don't get burned by the fire. It's just treated like an elemental thing. Elemental, yeah. Which makes the movie not very horrific. Yeah, in a way that I feel like that was John Williams' assertion sort of against Spielberg's intentions. Well, what do you mean it makes it not horrific? I mean, there's a way of looking at it that that's the most horrifying is that it's mindless. Uh, Yeah, I guess. But when you said you were surprised to find at whatever age you first saw the movie that it was less of a horror movie than you thought. It was in my room, I remember. Remember my? We brought it over to my room. My roommate was asleep, and I and I played it loud enough to hear the music anyway, and he didn't wake up. The number of things I've forgotten about college, we can just put that on the pile. I believe you. I believe that such a thing probably happened. Yeah, it's not horrific in the sense that you expected it to be. It is not a movie about making your skin crawl, even though it has some shocks. Right. It is truly roller coaster. You know, they always compare these movies to roller coasters. The threat on a roller coaster is just like you're actually being jerked around. It's just gravity. Right. 
You know, gravity uh, isn't personal. Jaws was this big influence. It created this whole Hollywood obsession with creating blockbuster roller coaster movies. There just wasn't really... Hollywood was not a machine for making movies that had something so dumb in it as this shark. <laughs> and yeah, I think it's brilliant on Williams's part, not just because da 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 is brilliant. It's iconic, but it's also very basic. The brilliance is saying that basic is the way to go with this story. I agree. Basic, elemental, uncomplicated. Yeah, that is the brilliant insight that he had. But I do want to push back a little bit against the reductionist idea. Well, it's just two notes. You know, there's a lot of notes. (laughs) I didn't say it's just two notes. It's at least three notes. It was totally inaccurate to say it's two notes because that third one is really important. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That one really gives it a impulse. That's a real propulsive note when it jumps down and puts that off kilter accent on the offbeat there. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about what sounds like a fish swimming. That's clearly the intention there. Yeah. That sounds like the fish. It's moving in a straight line. Every now and then it turns a little bit more. You can't always predict, but it's coming at you. I mean, it's an illustration in sound. In fact, in the first shot of the movie, Mm -hmm. under the credits, is a shark's eye view shot. Right, which obviously comes back a lot. But it's not really moving like a shark. The camera is just kind of drifting like a, you know, diver with a camera, which is what it is. It does not have any drive. It is not a very threatening point of view. It's just sort of drifting through seaweed and stuff. Right. And the music is there telling you what kind of motion to imagine because they didn't actually shoot it, which is like a driven, forceful forward motion. That's what it is the music of. Yes, he chose something simple, but then he also had the skill to make it seem deceptively simple. There's actually a lot of craft involved in making this sound so compelling. From the orchestration of it, the way he has it grow out of the low instruments of the orchestra, the low strings. I think it starts with just low strings and bassoons. And harp at the very beginning. That's right, that's right. Yeah, and then that one extra note, and then, of course, this horn gesture on top of it. Actually, it's not just a horn. There's a tuba in there, too, and tuba's sort of not usually used melodically like this. So it's a kind of unusual texture it becomes, which is so key and shows up in so many different guises all through the movie. Yeah, it's great. It's so great. So I just wanted to say, I just want to be on the record as saying it's a kind of silly reductionist thing to say the theme of draws. Oh, it's just two notes. There's a lot of notes and they're very, very well chosen. You want to hear a piece with just two notes, go, <laughs> like, look at that... The, Eyes wide shut, is that what you're going to Yeah, say? the liggety thing in Eyes wide shut. <laughs> Here's what it sounds like when there are actually just two notes in a piece. Well, come on, that, that has some effect, too. I mean... I, no, I'm not saying it's not effective, but... Uh, doesn't sound like Jaws does. It doesn't sound like a shark. It doesn't sound like a rollicking sea adventure. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, in fact, you're talking about the figure on top, the horn call. If you are not a reasonably advanced musician and you sit down on the piano to try and find that, you will have a hard time finding it. It's true. Its harmonic relationship to the dot 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 is weird. Yes. In just da 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 and dot dot, which is five notes total. Mm-hmm. 
he implies a very advanced, strange harmony. Yes, indeed. Which he has lifted from Stravinsky. Oh. Which I, is not a count against, but we should probably address this. Okay. As I said about in E.T. where he sort of acknowledges what he's doing. I think it's fairly acknowledged. He puts it in exactly the same key. It's always in exactly the place it appears in Rite of Spring. You know the chord I'm talking about, right? Dun, 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 Oh, yeah, 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 of course. That thing in Rite of Spring, it is an E chord with an E flat 7 chord above it, mm-hmm. which is a very weird relationship. And that is what is going on in Jaws in exactly the same place. Hmm. Well, uh, I mean, that's a, <laughs> that's a good thing to draw inspiration from. <laughs> I mean, yeah. well chosen. Yeah. You know, when we were talking about E.T., I said, we have it on record that this was used as a temp score. In this case, I don't think it can possibly have been because there's that story about Williams surprising Spielberg with it. So that was his connection in his head. Right. But yeah, it's a brilliant choice. So once he chooses this material for the shark, the melding of it that he does with the shark swimming, with the shark approaching its victims, with all of the tension of its menacing all around, the way he makes that association is, I think, so brilliant. I really think that this is just a superlative marriage of music to picture and to storytelling. And it's so carefully and judiciously done. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. Are you thinking of a particular scene? It's so much. It's so throughout the movie. Well, right. Okay, so let's go to the first one. The girl is skinny dipping in the ocean. Right. We first start to hear the bottom, and it's not rhythmical yet. It's just looking around, just exploring, maybe thinking about menacing and pouncing. And then when the camera starts, you know, the shark POV shot from underwater starts actually moving in. Then it starts moving into a rhythm. And so that teaches you, this is the shark. When you hear this, it is because it is the shark moving. And then we have this violence music, this chomping music, where he's getting killed, which has some of the shark elements in it, but there's just a chaos, basically. Sure callback here john remember in the chinatown episode where i was talking about uh, weird instruments and i said there's a bass vibraphone that there's only one in the world it's not a real instrument uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. did you notice here it is again <laughs> showing up for a cameo with just four notes when she grabs onto the buoy oh, i didn't notice it's the same one it's the only one in the world <laughs> i guess i should have recognized it i feel bad now it's getting real kill here <laughs> sorry and then it stops. As soon as she goes under the water, it's out. You know, like, we're still scared. The audience is still having a frightening, thrilling experience watching this, but the music is gone. The music is only for this elemental force that got her. And that's the rule that he sets up. There's a few different fake-outs early in the movie where Brody thinks that various things are the shark, and they aren't. You know, the guy with the swim cap, Bad Hat Harry. Uh, right. <laughs> he sees just the crest of his swim cap swimming in the ocean, and he thinks, oh, what is that? And then it turns out to be the guy. Or And then he hears screaming, and it turns out to be, uh, you know, just some kids horsing around in the water. The music wouldn't dare lie to us. 
and say, oh no, a scary thing might happen. Yeah, the big fake out is when these kids deliberately fake out and they make a fake Finn and uh, scary everyone on the beach in a later scene. You know, it's been directed to a full fake scare. There's action, uh, people screaming. Yeah. It's directed like a big action scene and the music sitting it out is the big tip off to the audience that this is a different kind of event. It's almost bizarre. Like we see a shark fin swimming past some people in the ocean and we don't hear the bottom bottom. And it's like, is it really there? <laughs> if a shark fin falls in the forest and there's no music to hear it, like, is it, it's a mismatch, you know, it's a confusion. That's right. It makes you uneasy, but in a different way. It makes you uneasy about whether you understand what's going on. Are we safe? Are we not? Whereas the actual threat in the movie is this roller coaster. It's very direct and simple. And yeah, he is very strict about what it goes with. Right. And I think that comes out of his insight into the pure, raw nature of it. Yeah. He associated the music with this, I keep saying, elemental force of violence and eating. And because of that, not only did he choose not to fake you out with it, he kind of can't. It's impossible for it to lie to you because nature can't lie to you. <laughs> right. You're either being eaten or you aren't. Yeah. Like the music is the eating machine. Right. So it, like, it can't even be there if the eating machine isn't there. Like, And then, you know, the next victim that we see, this kid Alex Kintner, sure enough, we hear the music bum, 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 bum as it's coming up. He's floating on this inflatable raft in the water. Yeah, this time it, it speeds up. Chalorando. Gets chomped off of the raft. As soon as the kid gets taken under, as soon as the shark goes away, the music is out. And then we see his poor mother looking for him on the beach and there's no music. And then we see this really great economically expressive shot of the bitten in half inflatable raft lapping in the surf and there's no music for that. We're kind of left alone just to look at it. Well, I think there actually is cut music there. I think there's actual music on the album for that. Yeah, well, somebody made the decision to cut that little extra music at the end of this scene. I don't know if it was Williams or Spielberg or somebody else, but it was the right cut. And, you know, for me, it really clinched this rule that the music is the shark and its movements and its actions. And it's immediate. It's about the immediacy. You know, we've said in other episodes that oftentimes the music will be really about people processing things that happen. It'll really come to the fore after something happens. And in this movie, you know, for the crucial moments, the shark attacks, the music is only allied with the attacking force and not with people's reactions to it. We're left in those moments to just look in blank horror at it without any help from the music, and it's so effective in this case. I mean, both things go on in this movie, and this is what I'm saying about there's sort of different types of approaches, different types of music. There is also music that scores Brody's feelings. There's music that scores the family life. There's music that scores the interactions on the boat, certainly in the second half among the characters, which is kind of dramatic processing atmosphere, personal yeah, of reaction course. music. I'm really mainly talking about the first half of the movie and, and how he uses the music to heighten the thing that you're actually scared of. But then, of course, he does other things. You know, I mean, I said that he sets up this hard and fast rule that you hear bottom, bottom when the shark is coming. And then, you know, you get to the second half of the movie and he intentionally subverts that right. and doesn't play bottom, bottom. So it can pop out of the water. Right, and scare you. Uh -huh. <laughs> it 
So yeah, of course it has many different ways of coming at it, but throughout all of it, it's just so intelligently done. I mean, there is a conspicuous reaction to the shark attack, but it's the last one. It's sort of the third shark attack on land before the second half of the movie gets started when there's the fake out with those boys with the fake fin, and then it goes into the pond, into the estuary, and it kills the guy who um, <laughs> is in the rowboat that we only see for two seconds. Is he like a sailing instructor or something? He's like telling the kids what to do on the sailboat. Yeah, which is a little creepy. I mean, it's kind of a creepy thing for a stranger to do. <laughs> Maybe he's not a stranger. I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. He's not a stranger. Maybe he's like their, their sailing coach. Are you guys all right? You guys okay over there? <laughs> that guy. <laughs> that guy, yeah. The guy whose leg you see get bit off. Yeah, the guy with the bouncy leg. He gets killed, and then Brody's son is in shock on the beach. He's in shock. And the music continues under this. Sure. Through Brody looking out to sea understanding that the second half of the movie awaits him. He's going to have to go out and quest after the evil force into the sea. It's so explicit in this music and in the way this music marries with this shot where he looks out under the bridge, out to the wide ocean. And the music just says, I got to go out there. We're all going to go out there now. Yeah. So I think something that's uh, back to the point I keep returning to about the difference between the way Williams saw the movie and Spielberg thought he saw it. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that it's written for the characters. Chief Brody, we hear he's afraid of the water. This is his weakness, his fear that he has to face. When we learn that Quint, he has this history and, you know, this is why he's so crazed about killing the shark. And that they have these psychological reasons and that the ocean represents all this stuff to them. The movie as it is now with this score does not invest in that. It doesn't go in that direction. It does not make the ocean represent something psychological. In fact, it makes the ocean pretty. Sure. It mostly plays very pretty kind of French Impressionist uh, chords for the ocean. It's beautiful. When they go out sailing, as you said earlier, it's a fun, wonderful thing to go out in a boat. The music does not, in that shot where he's looking out at the ocean, say, the ocean, a terrifying expanse of the strangest things known to man. And I think that's what the shot was shot to be. I think that Uh Spielberg thought this was going to sound like he's staring at something terrifying. And Williams really clearly says, the ocean is just the ocean. (laughs) It's what he has to do that matters. That's what coexists in this score that is exciting about the score to me, that it has this primal, threatening, leg-chomping force, and it also has very tender, pretty, this stuff that, if the shark comes from Stravinsky, this other stuff comes from mostly from Debussy. That's what it sounds like to me. Parts of it sound like La Mer, parts of it sound like Debussy's piano music. It's beautiful, and he's able to make that transition clearly and quickly in a bunch of places. Yeah, he goes back and forth. And I think it just maps out what's going on in the movie in a way that didn't show up until the score was there. I think that map was not as clear in the writing or shooting of the movie as it is in the score. Yeah, when we spoke about E.T., we talked about what a keen mapper Williams is, that he decides, you know, here's what's on the screen, but here's the story I want to tell. And he's able to put these filters over it that make us understand things in a way that, you know, that coalesce into this 
transcendent experience. I've seen in multiple interviews where he says he never reads scripts. He doesn't really think too much about the movie until he goes to see the screened version of the rough edit whenever he gets brought on because he wants to react to the rhythms and the feelings of what's on screen. It doesn't matter what the plan was. It matters what actually Mm -hmm. got assembled. Yeah. I think that really shows in the kind of insight here where he said to Spielberg, this is the kind of movie you made. And that came as news to Spielberg. This is their second movie together. They had already done right. uh, Sugarland the Sugarland Express, which has a very sparse. I mean, it's got a nicely chosen little tune, but it's very sparse compared to this. And when we were doing E.T., we were saying, you know, here's a movie that was designed to go hand in hand with yeah. the score. I don't think Jaws really was. And I'm not sure Spielberg thought that way until this experience. Yeah, that's right. I think it absolutely opened his eyes. Yeah, and then after it, you can hear him saying in interviews, somebody asks him, why do your movies lend themselves to such great music like this? And he says, it's because I directed with Johnny in mind. Right, and I think that that came around because of this experience, yes. where Williams said to Spielberg, here's the movie you made, and Spielberg thought about it and said, he is right, and I didn't know that yet. And then, again, yeah, their next project is Close Encounters, right? Which is like as right. musical a project as you can <laughs> make it. It's all about yes. this piece of music. So yeah, I think so. There's just profound, sensitive insight into how this piece of filmmaking was functioning at a deep, deep level. I mean, he invented the blockbuster with, I'm trying to say, this score. He invented that. Yeah, wow. The thing I'm saying about how the ocean is not psychological, the shark is not psychological, it's so general. It's for everyone. The shark is just, if you've ever experienced a threat, the shark is that. Uh It doesn't have to do with these characters and what's in their head. It is like, do you want to get your leg bitten off or not? period. And so everyone can relate to it. I really liked it towards the end of last episode when we were talking about Laura, and you said that one of the important things that music can do is to generalize a story. I thought that was such a keen insight, so well observed, that what's happening on the screen is just what's happening on the screen. Why should the audience care about it? Well, the music says this is something that is about all of us. Here are the feelings in it that you can experience and that you have access to as well, even though you're not having the experiences that are on the screen. Boy, this is just a marquee example of that. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for calling back to that, because exactly, this is like the maximal case. The music is generalizing more than I think the writer or the director even envisioned for this material. Yeah, absolutely. Are we done? That's about it, right? No, no. Let's talk about other stuff. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Since we're at a little bit of a pause here, I just wanted to say squalus. Wanted to make sure we got the word squalus into the podcast. <laughs> sure, squalus. feeding of a large squalus, possibly Angemanus or Asurus glaucus. You know, I looked up yeah. those things he's saying. Those are not the names of uh, sharks. However, <laughs> really? Must be considerably There's no such thing as a shark called the Angemanus or Azurus glaucus. I'm reading goofs in jaws here. Well, look, he was nervous, okay? Maybe he garbled what he was saying. Okay, question about that. He is from the Oceanographic Institute. Why is he doing an autopsy? Like he knows how to do an oh. autopsy and he's reading into his autopsy recorder. He doesn't wouldn't know about human remains. Yeah, that's a good point. He's not a human <laughs> medical doctor. Okay, but here's my biggest question about something that struck me as weird in the movie, okay? Mm-hmm. They're on Quint's boat, the Orca, and uh, things are getting tough. And Roy Scheider goes to call for help on the radio. And Robert Shaw goes and smashes the radio because he's so crazy about dealing with it himself. Excuse me, Chief. That's great! Is your question going to be, why does he have a baseball bat on his boat? Why does he have a baseball bat? Not only why does he have a baseball bat, why does he have three baseball bats mounted in, like, baseball bat holders on the side of the boat? 
I think they're probably for clubbing fish to death. Clubbing fish to death? Don't you think? For whacking them in the head when they get on, on board? I guess that must be the answer. I just came up with that. It's a good guess. Listeners, if you know why Quinn has a baseball bat, I mean, that's got to be why it is, right? There are three. I just want to make clear. There are three, and they are in what look like specialty item baseball bat holders that are mounted to the side of the boat. If there is any movie about which every question has been asked and answered, it is Jaws. <laughs> why yeah, I'm sure the does answers are out there. Quint have a <laughs> baseball bat? Uh, well, there's a lot of people asking, why does he smash the radio? Yeah, because he's nuts. I mean, that's easy. Because he's driven and he doesn't want his quest to be interrupted and he right, right, right. finds the chief annoying in his landlubberliness. Exactly. Uh, no, it's not being answered. Well, all right. <laughs> Send it out into the world. But my answer is for killing fish. Or for playing baseball with the other fishermen from boat to boat. <laughs> that's right. He mentions his friend in the Indianapolis story who was a baseball player. Maybe it's an homage to him. Oh, yeah. Perfect segue. Let's talk about that scene. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about that scene. That's a great scene. Yeah. And it's a great piece of scoring. Although, even if you love the scene, you might not remember that. It sneaks in. Yeah. It's the sneakiest sneak in. If you even for a second start attending to the words to this electrifyingly delivered monologue by Robert Shaw, you'll miss the entrance. It'll pass you by. And then all of a sudden there's music there and you don't remember how it got there. Like, here, let's play the monologue. And yeah, guess where it's going to start. Where would you start it? Where is the appropriate turning point in the story for it to go from just some guys sitting around a table telling about something in the past to guys being under the spell of a horrific, nightmarish, traumatic thing that's hanging over all of them? Where does it turn? Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side, Chief. Who's coming back from the island of Tinian Delady just delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. How about now? No, of course not. We haven't earned it yet. He hasn't brought us into the zone yet. And yeah, the acting is enough here. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Oh, the first shark? Tiger. 13-footer, you know. You know that when you're in the water, Chief. Yeah, but we kind of have to process that before it gets scary. Yeah, just looking at the faces. Doesn't need to be embellished yet. Well, we didn't know. Which our bomb mission had been so secret. No distress signal had been sent. Uh-huh. How about now? They didn't even list us overdue for a week. Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. Yes, that is where. He did it right. <laughs> yeah, he picks the moment when they start to be attacked by the sharks. When the sharks take on this... You know, dread and, and menace that is hanging over the whole bunch of them in the water. That's the experience that Williams is heightening. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. And it never reaches a level that's much higher than where it is when it enters. It stays subliminal. Black eye, like a doll's eye. You know what this is another example of that I really admire about John Williams? That at least in those days, the sounds, the harmonies that he would use and the moves that those harmonies would make were drawn from, I think, a wider palette than many film scores. Mm -hmm. Listen to just the texture of this. Listen to just the sounds that he has chosen to lay in here. Rip you to pieces. (laughs) 
and listen no to how they move. They're, they're not long. just treading water. They are matching the men. shifts in emphasis. They are rising know, as he gets more agitated, but in a subtle way. I think he just has this great skill for finding the moves that are supportive, even when they're not obvious moves. Cleveland. Baseball player. Bosun's mate. Even in the big action cues, like, I feel like the showpiece cue, there's many great moments in this score, but the showpiece cue is really the man against beast cue. Yeah, the barrel chase. I mean, there's a sequence of barrel chases. The first one, it starts with Roy Scheider snapping into frame, shocked by the shark, saying you're going to need a bigger boat. And then Mm -hmm. there's action. And this action swerves with the action on screen. It's so nimble. Yes, nimble. Not just in its timing, but also in its ability to make both subtle transitions and over the... This is the one with the corn gold bit in it. Yeah, but it's also got so many instances of the bum, 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 bum. It bounces back and forth so readily. It makes it so clear that both elements, the pure, raw nature force... And this grand, finely wrought adventure Shut thing. They're both in here. And yeah, like you said, it was Williams who put them both in there. Neither one of those things were really what Spielberg had envisioned. I think that the moment in this cue when he plays a thing, is this the only time it happens in the movie? Because in the you know, like the concert version of the Jaws theme that he played with the Boston Pops, this is a major part of the piece. That's a 20-footer. 25. Yeah, that's such a great shot. See the full length of the shark there gliding past the boat. The music, it's such an elevation. To me, that's the moment that integrates and explains to us how to unify both the pretty ocean music and the hostile shark music. It says, here's how they fit together. How does it integrate them? In that moment, you know, here's the shark. We're still tied to the momentum of the mm-hmm. b- b- of the ostinato, but there's these chords. Yeah, it feels like this beauty shot of the full length of the shark, it kind of expands out from the ostinato. Yeah, opens up from it. It's an opening, yeah. And he's kind of seeded this before. I mean, at the very beginning when Chrissy goes swimming and we hear bum, 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 bum. The chords over it are, again, these chords. It's an E-flat chord and then an A chord, which are in this relationship that is a little bit uh, magical, sparkly. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a Lydian relationship, actually. It's similar to, yeah, we were saying that uh, the tritone in the Lydian scale sounds magical. And yeah, it has a similar effect. It's like the two chords are a little bit heightened in relationship to each other. This shimmering. It's like the shimmering surface of the water. It's well chosen. Yeah, he kind of makes this little musical nexus. Look, these things go together. And in that moment, you understand. The shark is kind of beautiful. The ocean is kind of beautiful. It's just nature. Mm -hmm. And it's going to kill you when they need to kill it. But anyway, what I was saying, this whole cue is kind of a tour de force of linking things together that haven't really been linked together. Like, here comes that work motif that we talked about. As you were saying, we have the shark theme, we have the pretty ocean music, we also have this sailing tune, the like the orca theme. Oh yeah, you think that's the theme for the orca? Yeah, you sort of, whenever you see the ship, you hear it, right? 
and it sounds like a sea shanty or something. You hear it definitely as the ship is sinking at the end with Roy Scheider climbing up the mast. Yeah, it's the theme that kind of gets introduced at the halfway point in the movie, kind of marks the act break. Mm -hmm. When they first sail out, you hear it given this prominent treatment. sailor tune yeah exactly a chipper sailor tune so like you were saying he takes that and this killer monster and this rousing adventure music and he takes them and weaves them all into this plaid for this action cue where you can really just see how every color contributes to the whole Actually, the moment that I was going to call out in the first place as an example of smart support is additional material. He never stops being willing to create something new to fill the space. It's the moment when uh, Richard Dreyfuss is trying to tie a tracker onto one of the barrels and Uh Robert Shaw wants to shoot and he's waiting and there's this rising tension. Is he going to do it in time? Is he going to shoot him with the spear gun before the shark goes by? And he does this little scherzo work with the shark motif and it sounds like clever compositional passage work when you just listen to it alone but it actually really lines up with each moment that we're watching yeah there's a lot of notes in this score (laughs) (laughs) never forget there are yeah so we were able to actually look at the score again, the notated score for this, which is always fascinating. And it seemed to me as I was going through that there were some instances where some parts of the music had been cut. Yeah, there's a lot of good score editing here. Yeah. If you go piece by piece through the album and listen to all the music that was recorded, a bunch of stuff has been cut. And I think it's all smart and also well composed, you know, I see both sides of it and they ended up in a really good place, I think. Yeah, like right off the bat in the score, there's a very short cue that was written for when Brody is at the typewriter in his office and he first types in S-H-A-R-K attack. It spells shark. <laughs> you know, this is the official yeah. report on the first victim. Did you notice that he misspelled coroner? It says corner. <laughs> I don't know if that's interesting to you, John, but it's fascinating to me. And I think a lot of our listeners will appreciate that. Well, there was music written that was supposed to line up with the typing. And when I first watched it, before I had looked at the score, I thought to myself, oh, yeah, so good to not have music on the typing because the sounds of the typewriter is enough. You know, that's percussive. It has a resonance to it. Was that ever recorded, that typewriter chord music? Yeah, yeah, we have it. It's in that uh, expanded album. Ooh, ooh, let's put that up against the typewriter. Sure. Brody's office. Medical inspector. Yeah. Now the fire chief wants you to go over the fourth of July. It's just a chord. Yeah. The scoring, obviously, like all the technical choices that Williams makes are always professional and classy. If you fit any of the cut music into this movie, you think, oh, yeah, that's fine. But then think about what it does overall. Yeah, there's a lot of stretches, especially in the first half of the movie, with no music. You know, where all the kind of town business, whenever he's talking to the mayor, he's going around, walking around town, you know, buying art supplies to make the signs and stuff. There's some source music there. But there's no 
score. Famously, Steven Spielberg himself is playing clarinet in the recording of the crappy high school marching band. <laughs> yeah, Steven Spielberg played clarinet in high school, you know, could make a sound out of the instrument, but was obviously not a <laughs> professional caliber player. But he wanted to get in on the fun, and the spot that Williams found to use him was for <laughs> when it was supposed to sound like a rinky-dink little student band, a marching band. There's approximately two seconds of it in the movie. What you got there? Listen, we had a shark attack at South Beach this morning, man. Fatal. I've got to batten down the beach. Yeah, the Red Williams saying, you know, it's hard to ask these consummate professional musicians, it's hard to ask them to play badly. But that was the perfect spot to put Steven in. <laughs> They're playing like a Sousa march. They're playing Semper Fidelis. I looked it up. Oh, yeah. So that is Spielberg. That's not the only time when you hear Spielberg's, you know, breath in the movie. He's also the voice on the radio at one point. Oh, is he? Which voice? Yeah, he's the voice that says, uh, come in, Orca. It's like in the middle of the first man versus these cube. Emily, plug my station to Orca. Amity Point Light Station to Orca. Come in, Orca. Orca, come in. I have Mrs. Martin Brody here. That's Steven Spielberg. I didn't know that. That's cool. I'll, let me just finish my sentence, though, that there's all these stretches with no music when Brody's attending to business, when he's with his family, when Hooper comes over for dinner, you know, all these kind of domestic scenes that don't get music. And it felt so right that they don't get music because they shouldn't be heightened. They need to be the ground against which all of the thrilling action is going to happen. And so, yeah, just to have only the stark sound of the typewriter in that moment, I think, was definitely the right decision. If there was music there, then yeah. it would feel like it would be presumptuous. Like, what is the music have to tell me about the typewriter it's stark it has to be stark i think what it would tell you if it were there uh-huh. is that the intrigue of the as we've now are saying that's generalized story of man against the terrors mm-hmm. of nature and oh my god this man's responsibilities it would take it to that scale from early on it would say this whole story is being told in that register instead of how the movie actually is, where that register emerges out of something more prosaic. Mm -hmm. I think there's a distinct artistic choice in the first half of the movie to be prosaic. It's like a particular flavor. I actually really like this movie in Spielberg's output, you know, more than some of his later stuff, because it still has this kind of rough, personal, you know, real-life cinematic aesthetic. Uh-huh. Sort of got this 70s-ness to it in that the camera plays an observational role, I think, more than it does in his later work. Like in that tourist scene, it just looks around at different people's faces. And when he's walking around town, he goes into the store and you just kind of see people going about their business in the store. And it's taking in the scenery in this not entirely ordered, not entirely choreographed way, which is very evocative, very good at creating atmosphere. A lot of the beach scenes are directed that way. It's not packaged, to use a term that you've used earlier. And, you know, Spielberg later became so completely synonymous with packaging, I think sometimes unfairly, but he definitely went more in that direction. And yeah. here there's a negotiation in the movie between packagedness and unpackagedness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the choices about whether to use music, John Williams music in the first half, are really about that, about which aspects of the story the packaging applies to and how we get from one type of storytelling to the other. I agree absolutely with everything you just said, but I just also think that it was part of the calculation of really nailing the association of the music is the shark. That means that the music doesn't get to also be the voice of what's happening in this small town and what are the responsibilities of this guy in his family life. The music is opting to be the voice of the natural force. And that would be, I think, undermined a little if it was opting to also be a kind of 
characterizing storytelling voice. Maybe. I mean, to some degree, we're saying the same thing. Yeah, I agree. You know, in a movie where you did hear the shark chord while he's typing on the typewriter Mm -hmm. and the sort of shark sounds lingered into other scenes, you would still say, well, the music is the shark. The shark is just hanging over them. The difference between that way of scoring it in this way is more about how invested you are in this kind of realistic style, this observational texture of the way that the world is being presented. I think that the special purity of the association from music and the shark, I think, extra demanded that it not venture into this observational realm. Right, except there is a marked exception to what you're saying, which is a really beautiful moment in the movie oh, yeah. and in the score. I know what you're going to say. It's beautiful. Which is the father and son scene. Yeah. It's beautiful in every way, and it is really savvy to keep the score there because it does help establish, again, relationships among the different elements that are going to be at play in the second half. Can I say that's the exception that proves the rule? I'm never sure exactly when is appropriate to use that phrase. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what the phrase means. I mean, it's sort of a... It's sort of an oxymoronic phrase, right? Sure, it's the exception that proves the rule. But I think maybe it does make sense in this case because... uh, All right, leave it to the listeners to work it out. I'm just going to stick with it. I think that's the exception that proves the rule. And it's just a beautiful piece. So we're talking about this scene where Brody, Roy Scheider's character, is holding his head in his hands and really concerned and angst-ridden about the shark. He's processing the guilt because Mrs. Kinder yeah. just said that he's responsible for her son's death and he'll never be able to make that up to her. He's in pain about this. Right, and he sort of acknowledges that she's sort of right about that, you know, that she's got a point. And he's agonizing over this, and his little young son is sitting at the dinner table with him and is mimicking all of the gestures that he's making with his hands. He's holding his head in his hands in the same way, and then putting his hands on his face, and then steepling his fingers in the same way, and then eventually Roy Schotter catches on, sees that this is happening, and starts to make goofy faces for the kid to imitate. It's just so charming. And the score is so mature and lovely. Yeah, I heard that this was a thing that Spielberg observed the kid doing between takes and then said, no, we can really use that and Uh put it in. So this too has a very observed, not the kind of thing you would script, the openness to chance quality that I'm talking about. And yet the music comes and meets it here. And yeah, the chord that he picks here, it's again, Debussy is the point of reference, I think, for these sounds. I think it's like a G chord with a C sharp in it sometimes. All right. But it's over a C natural in the bass. It's both tender, safe, intimate, cozy, loving family, and then this deeper, whatever, the cosmic forces that mean that the story is not over and that the ocean is still out there. This is a very carefully chosen instrumental palette. It's the piano and the harp, and I think also the vibraphone, is that right? And they are all playing the same notes, all playing these kind of hesitant chords. So it's these several different instruments, mostly piano and harp, playing together that, you know, you could say, well, that represents the two people, Roy Scheider and his son. There's two instruments doing the same thing because it's about the... Mm -hmm. They're doing the same thing. But then in the low strings, there is this pad that is this underlying concern and tension. So it's two people, two entities doing the same thing on top of some distracting other tension. You translate it into music 
in such a simple way and you choose the notes and you choose the chords so well, it's written right there. It comes across so immediately, so viscerally, I think. And that the rhythms are irregular. It's just sort of phrase, bass note. Phrase, different phrase, longer phrase, wanders around. Bass note. It's not a tune. No. It's not in strict rhythm. It's just gestures responding with more gestures. It exactly matches the action. It's thoughtful and invested without having something to say. It's just a moment. It's a beautiful piece of scoring. And I only noticed this last week that those exact chords become the end titles at the very end when they are swimming home. Oh, yeah, that's right. And now it has become steady. Hooper and Brody have survived. They're paddling their way back to shore. And now we hear these same chords. It's the association between the beauty of the ocean and nature and safety, intimacy, family, the children, it's all tied up in this subconscious way. You know, even my saying the words becomes a little too analytical, but Williams understands what the layers are, where the psychology of this movie is. That's the level it's at. Are things good now? Yes, things are good. You know, like with his son, like love. Yeah. It's very simple, and this connection is super smart, I think. It's so remarkable that that's where the movie ends. That That's the last thing you hear in the movie. Again, even you know, if you ask somebody who's seen this movie a lot of times, what's the last thing you hear in the movie? What does it sound like at the end? You know, you'd be tempted to say, oh, it's probably some kind of recap of bottom, bottom. You know, that's definitely what would happen nowadays. You've seen a thriller, and then, you know, if you sit through the credits, you're going to hear some recap of the tense stuff. Hey, you just watched this movie. Remember all the stuff that happened in the movie? Here's what it sounded like. But this movie just kind of fades away quietly, and there's no hint of the threat. There's no hint of this brooding violent force. Yeah, exactly. He ends on this note of love and stillness and safety. What it also doesn't have is a sense of Hollywood showmanship. Like, you just saw a pretty great summer movie, didn't you? Yeah, exactly. It never says, you know, applaud. Because it's just watching what's on screen. Because during the end credits, we see the waves lapping. Way in the distance, we see the two of them reaching shore. And it just plays the movie all the way through. I think that purity is very attractive about this movie. Yeah. It doesn't grandstand, even though it, it is a showy crowd pleaser of a movie, but it's not self-regarding. It just does each thing that it needs to do. Yeah, that's right. But hey, one more thing that I wanted to say about Steven Spielberg, back from when we were talking about how he actually plays on the soundtrack for a tiny bit. Uh-huh. I think it's really interesting and instructive that Spielberg actually was a musician to some degree, that he played clarinet, you know, through middle school and high school. He knew how to read music. He understood what music was doing. And yeah, I absolutely do think that it was Williams that kind of opened his eyes about the power of music in filmmaking. And he learned that lesson very, very well, obviously. But he's been quoted as saying that if he weren't a director, he would want to be a composer. He would want to be a film composer. Actually, here at USC, there's a scoring stage, a recording studio for recording film music that is the Steven Spielberg scoring stage that he endowed because of his respect for the craft. It's just such a potent and productive, such a fruitful relationship between these two guys. Not only do they respect each other, what they each are able to do, but each of them sort of has a good instinct for the other person's art. That Williams, as we've been saying, has this absolute storytelling instinct that he comes up with ideas about what the movie should be saying, independent of the director, 
And meanwhile, Spielberg knows his way around music and is able to recognize when something is musical and isn't and is able to converse with Williams about it meaningfully. I think it's one of the great filmmaking collaborations. Yeah, it is. I guess another way of spinning something that I have been saying in this episode is I think that it was even more potent and exciting a collaboration here earlier when the two of them had not quite... I think that over the years, the thing that they're each bringing has become more and more similar. And there's sort of an agreement about this Mm. product that they're both heading toward. And I feel like there's slightly two different artists at work here who just happen to be simpatico in a wonderful way. The music is kind of inserting itself into a movie that wasn't waiting up for Mm -hmm. it, wasn't saying, where are you? In something like Jurassic Park, you feel very aware of Spielberg saying, and now Johnny will show us something wonderful. And there's a sense that this team has something really clearly in mind as a team from the beginning. And here I feel the two parts, they couldn't be more harmonious. And yet it feels like two things meeting each other. Yeah, that's right. There's a tension between them that obviously is wonderfully resolved here in the final product of the movie. Yeah. But you're right. You can kind of feel them feeling each other out. And, you know, obviously there can be great results from that more holistic, unified team approach that came later too, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But there is something exciting about this for sure. You know, Spielberg hired Williams in the first place for Sugarland Express because he was a fan, because he had written Sugarland Express while listening to the album of the Reavers that Williams had written. It's a Western score, right? It's like William Faulkner's story about his childhood. He, also, The Cowboys is a Western score. Oh, maybe that's what I was thinking. I of. think both of those he was a fan of. Yeah, he had written while listening to it. So he's that kind of a film music nerd. Like he yeah. buys the albums and then uses them to set the mood. He has that relationship to this stuff. And he basically hired Williams as uh, someone whose music he really liked. But I don't think until this collaboration did he realize, oh, it has something to do with my directorial impulses in this very deep way. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, so um, speaking of having looked at the score, do you remember in E.T., I made fun of whoever actually notated the manuscript here, who's ever handwriting this is. Is it Herb Spencer, the orchestrator, maybe? (laughs) Maybe. Because he misspells the name of the character, Keys. Yeah, he misspells Brody here too, right? Yeah, he calls him Brady. The name Brady is written a bunch throughout the score. And then for the climactic punchline catchphrase that he says, (laughs) you know, at the end of the action, when he shoots the air tank in the shark's mouth and blows it up, he says in the movie, he says, Smile, you son of a bitch. Smile, you son of a bitch. That's notated here in the score because there's a hole in the music for him to say that line. And so that line is written in the score. Wait until he gets done saying this line and then the music comes back in. But (laughs) it's written as fine, you son of a bitch. I think fire. Don't you think it's fire, you son of a bitch? I really think think it says fine. Now I'm going to look. Fine, you son of a bitch? What would that mean? I'm saying it doesn't mean anything. It's a weird mishearing. (laughs) I think it's, I think that's an R. Whatever. Yes, they don't pay that close attention to certain elements of the movie. They're responding to the action. It says, cut Brady, fine, you son of a bitch. (laughs) That's what I think. I guess it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It worked anyway. I don't know if you want to jump the gun with this, but, you know, I think he's following the same how to treat an explosion formula that we're going to come across again here. Mm -hmm. In a famous explosion movie. Yeah, think of another explosion that John Williams scored. He lays out for the actual sound effect of the explosion, and then there's some light falling, tinkling stuff, like as the debris of the explosion is settling. You know, this might be a precursor to that. I think in this case, it's even more of a choice because 
what you're seeing on screen is truly grotesque. Sure. It's the like corpse just yeah, it's bloody meat. oozing blood in every direction, exploded headless half body of a shark. And he plays the prettiest spiritual ocean music <laughs> he can because that is what it's supposed to be for the story. Again, I assume that when they shot that, they imagined that there would be some kind of creepy horror movie yeah. music at that point. And Williams was like, no, this is triumph. This is the thing we wanted to see. Right. And the shark was always kind of a marvel anyway. So let's really be pretty here. Yeah, it gives it a catharsis. You know, you get to actually feel a sense of relief and resolution about it. Yeah, it's a big sigh. Yeah, you don't want it to be spooky now. It's like 20 bars of sighing. Yeah. All right, now I think we're up to the part in the episode that I usually think of as 20 bars of science, <laughs> where we talk okay. about... You go, you go. I went first last time. You told me to go first. You go now. Fine. Okay, so I obviously think this is great. This is going to go towards the top of my list. Mm -hmm. Me too. So far, we're on the same page. Okay, good. So many skillful things about this score, so many smart things, and it's the kind of stuff that we love to talk about where the composer really gets in there and tells the story along with the visual, along with the rest of the production. He is laying out how to do that here in a way that, yeah, I don't know if you actually got all the way to articulating it, but were you saying that John Williams himself invented the summer blockbuster? That was the kind of hot take buried in the thing that I was definitely yeah, well, saying. So if you want to go that far, go for it. Well, sure. All right. Let's leave it at that. That's the hot take. That's the for discussion. Yeah. But yeah, I think the way that he fused the different elements of this story into a unified whole, laid out exactly what you were going to be scared of, what you're going to have fun with, and how those things were going to interact, absolutely added up to the movie that became this, no pun intended, sea change of a movie that changed Hollywood and created the summer blockbuster. How far you want to go with that, whatever. But he had a big hand in it. Beyond that, I think something that... I don't really think we've actually seen on the list before that he is introducing here is the ability to have his music become itself onomatopoeia for a thing. Mm -hmm. It has totally transcended this movie. You know, it's just the sound of a shark. Anytime anyone ever anywhere sees a shark, they go bottom, bottom, bottom. You know, the San Jose Sharks hockey team, whenever they go in the power play, they play Jaws music. It's inextricably linked with sharks everywhere. It is the onomatopoetic way to not only describe a shark, but also to describe something creeping up on you. Yeah, a threat. A threat because of how simple it is, but also because of how well executed it is. It is this nugget that is miraculously transcendent. I think there's going to be one other score coming up on the list that we talk about that I'm also going to say has this kind of onomatopoeia effect. I wonder if you can guess what that is. Sure. I think we all know, and I think that there's almost an allusion to it in yeah. this, but let's wait sure. until then. Okay. So that is worth a great deal. Being able to create that with the music, I mean, that's the thing we're here to talk about. That's the art. So how high up on my list is this going to wind up? It's going to settle in at number three. Uh-huh. I'm putting in my third slot underneath E.T. and Vertigo, then Jaws. So I'm leaving it underneath E.T. and Vertigo, which we both said were neck and neck at the top before I leave them at the top. Those are just movies that require score all the way through them in a way that, you know, this is just by comparison, just a little bit more servile 
I don't know. I mean, I don't want to knock Jaws at all, but that's where I'm going to put it in my number three spot. I really want to hear what do you say, and I bet you put it in the same spot too. I'm with you on pretty much everything you said. As you said, it's more in a servant role. It's more of a support score. It is, as I've been trying to say throughout this episode, miraculously insightful support score that kind of makes the movie what it is, not just on a scene-for-scene level, but in a deep sense kind of sorts the elements and plots them in place in a way that makes the movie work, and that's brilliant. I am looking at the third position. I want to put it above Chinatown because just the scale of it and what it gets done is so much bigger. What I've got in between there is The Adventures of Robin Hood, which Uh Robin Hood didn't need to solve any problems for its movie, but it just inhabits it completely with this fullness of music that's so exciting. And like you said a while ago, there's something classy about having an old classy score (laughs) up there, and I feel good about that. I, I like that. And in fact, that's really my issue at this point. Do I want to separate Jaws from E.T.? by The Adventures of Robin Hood because, uh, look, I don't want John Williams just sitting on the top of my list. I get some other people up there. And he quotes Korngold, essentially, or he is inspired by Korngold in this score. I don't think he surpasses Korngold in his Korngoldness, so let's let Korngold be above him. So my inclination was, I'm sort of thinking of it as tied with Robin Hood, but I'm going to, I think, put it at four to resolve that just because the order looks nice to me to have Robin Hood in third place and Jaws in fourth. But it doesn't come from any conviction about quality. I just talked out the entire thought process. I was really waiting for the turn where you were going to say, yeah, I was thinking about putting it below Robin Hood, but then I realized that, no, of course I like Jaws more than Robin Hood. What am I, crazy? I was waiting for that to happen. No, it's not going to happen this time. I'm not crazy, but, uh, you know, we were told that we were pretty dismissive of the King Kong score. Uh, Well, we might be. And I just feel like, well, Robin Hood is sort of in the same category of the old masters. (laughs) I see. And it influenced everything to come. And I genuinely love it. So I'm happy to give it all of that credit. So you want to have Robin Hood in metal contention now because uh, just to stave off people from complaining (laughs) that we don't like the old stuff. We like the old stuff. It's not even just to stave people off. It's like, all right, I get it, I guess. My one, two, three that I've got right now all feel to me both like huge achievements in movie scoring and just in some obnoxious old classical way of thinking about compositions, like what wonderful compositions they each are yeah, in their of course. own way. And Jaws uh, is like, I'm thinking of it, okay, well, it slides a little below Robin Hood for that reason. It's a great album, though. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's great to listen to. Hey, did we say this at any point during this episode? This music just sounds great. As an arranger, as an orchestrator, as a user of instruments, John Williams is at the top of all-time yeah, craft. Of course He's he one is. of the best there's ever been at just making an orchestra sound great, and that makes the movie sound great. If you listen to the album, you might think like, oh, this reminds me of that great movie Jaws that I love so much, and that's why it sounds good. But it really works the other way, too. Like, this movie feels like a great movie that you love because... You're hearing an orchestra sound great the whole time, and that's a huge asset for it. Yeah, I really have nothing to say against it, but the list thing is... Dumb? Is an agony. I don't really believe in it. Uh, I'm saying four. I'm saying four, John. Also, for our lists to look a little different shows that we're, you know... All right. We're different. All right. Like I said, 20 bars are sighing at the end. (laughs) Yeah, at least. All right. Well, the hits just keep on coming. You know what's up next time? Jaws 2! No, I forget. Which one is it? I think it's The Godfather. The Godfather? The one and only. Or I guess the first one and only. The one, but not the only, but the first one. That's right. The Godfather, score by Nino Rota. Have you seen this movie, Andy? I have seen The Godfather. I assume you have as well. I have seen it. I think a lot of people have seen this movie. (laughs) Yes. I think a lot of people have seen this movie. (laughs) It's got some good music by Nino Rota. We're going to talk about it next time. Join us. Yeah, join us. In the sense of listening to the show. (laughs) Don't try and find us. Listen, try and find us. What could happen? What's the worst no. that could happen? Try and find John. Try and find John. Yeah, I'm much more visible. Yeah.
All right. Well, listen, as you're trying to find us, one way that you can find us is on Twitter at Scoresettlers. You know, Jaws, everybody loves Jaws. Love to hear a lot of different takes on Jaws. I hope different people chime in on that and tell us stuff we got wrong. Yeah, love that. Love it. Love it. No, we do love it. We love it when people chime in. And yeah, if actually when people show up and say you got this wrong, that is pretty interesting to me. Yeah, or when they say, hey, you Just forgot. Be nice about it. <laughs> you forgot to mention this thing. You know, we've gotten some interesting chime-ins recently that said, you know, talking about things that we didn't mention. And yeah, of course we can't mention everything, but we love hearing from listeners. And another great thing that you could do to find us would be to find us on iTunes and write a review there because it really helps get the word out uh, helps people to find the podcast because uh, we're going to be talking about some great stuff we want a lot of people to hear it. please thank you please and thank please you. and thank you yeah you know uh, that same guy i mentioned eben had i think a good suggestion we were kind of hemming and hawing last time about our sign off whether we should continue to say uh let's listen to some more mm-hmm. film music next time what does he think we should say he says that the sign off should just be like because at the end of last time we just said it's friggin jaws next time every time now we should be able to say it's friggin blank next time so you know what come back next time it's friggin the godfather too much friggin' for you? <laughs> I don't know how that sounds. I don't know. You know, last time before we put it out, I was like, John, should we say friggin' on here? Does that? Well, we did it. Does that raise the age limit for... Uh, or does it lower it? So uh, I don't know if I want to institutionalize that. And also it makes it strange to say it about... It just sounds like we're going to do something to The Godfather. <laughs> I don't know how that sounds. Okay, but yeah, it's The Godfather next time. That's fine. I mean, hopefully from here on out forever, what we're doing next time is something great. It's never going to be on Golden Pond again. <laughs> you know, maybe at the end of this whole series, we should do uh, what did we get wrong? Oh, absolutely. How do we want to reorder these stupid lists? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should definitely come back and play some games with it and make each other change our orderings <laughs> for stuff. Because I know everyone's favorite part of this is the list. Yeah. That's why people listen. They love the list. They're all keeping track at home. They have a pad. They have a thing on their wall with the list written up on it. <laughs> they really care. Let me just mention again that we are recording our list as we're making it on our website, which is settlingthescorepodcast.com. And if you go there, you can follow the link to our rankings. Mm-hmm. Just about a week after each episode is released, I put up where the film falls in the list so that uh, you can keep track at home. Right. Convenient for printing. Mm-hmm. And you can just export it and have it engraved on it a piece of metal if you want <laughs> lots of things you can do the data is all there but I would wait till we get to 25 yeah thanks for coming boy we get to talk about The Godfather next time I really am looking forward to it a lot uh, me too okay and now to the soothing sounds of the beach music from Jaws farewell <laughs>